0: Hello and welcome to the Church's True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry and thank you for joining us. We are attempting to do something historic. In this 12 episode podcast series, we are going to define a paradigm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints that will attempt to satisfy three requirements. First, it's going to be intellectually bulletproof. Meaning all of the great critics of the church, Sandra Tanner to Jeremy Runnels to Dan Vogel, should all be able to listen to the next 12 hours of this podcast series and say, okay, I think that satisfies all the intellectual critiques that we've made of the church in the areas of foundational origins, scripture, church history. Not that that should be our goal, but sometimes critics make valid arguments and we need to be able to respond to those. We may not be able to satisfy all the critics in terms of the lived experience or how the brethren are leading the church today, but those are more qualitative aspects. But in terms of church history and scripture, I think we'll be able to satisfy all of them. Second requirement is that the Mormonism or the view of the restored church that we're left with is viable and beautiful and worthy of our devotion. You may think if you're trying to satisfy the critics that you're going to remove all the aspects of Mormonism that makes it worthy and interesting to engage with in the first place, but I think we're going to have a view of the LDS Church that's true and beautiful and meaningful. Third requirement, and most important to me personally, probably, is that I do all this without landing in my stake president's office. I've been told that this is impossible to do. People have tried to do this and they get in trouble. I disagree. I think there's a right way to do this, and I think that if you listen to the entire 12 episodes, that you'll see that I'm doing this from a very faithful perspective. I'm a Latter-day Saint. I love the church. I take my covenant seriously. I sustain the brethren. And I think that you'll find that I'm doing this from a very faithful standpoint. Okay, so come along this journey with me. Let's see if we can pull it off. Let's talk about the intended audience here. First are the people going through dark night of the soul type faith crisis. And what I mean by dark night of the soul is a stage in personal development when a person undergoes a difficult and significant transition. This is accompanied by a painful shedding of previous conceptual frameworks such as identity, relationship, career, habit, or belief system that previously allowed them to construct meaning in their life. This is associated sometimes with depression and anxiety and can be described as an existential crisis, as giving up hope, or as losing all sense of direction. So if that's you, I'm very sorry. That's a difficult place to be, isn't it? I've been there, and that's why I feel so motivated to try to do this, is to help people in those situations. Second intended audience are the ex-Mormons who have left the church. And I'm not telling you if you've left the church, you're doing it wrong. But I've heard too many exit stories where someone says something like, I read the CS letter and I was gone in a couple days. For those people, I'd like them to hear how I've made sense of these issues intellectually and and see a nuanced approach to these faith crisis issues. If it works for you, maybe you can use it to come back to the church and enjoy what you used to love about the church. If not now, then maybe sometime in the future. If you've already thought through this more nuanced approach and you have different reasons to leave the church, the lived experience, or it just doesn't make sense to you, and you've left, then that's fine. That's a thoughtful way to approach your religion. And then the last intended audience here are the informed scholars and apologists and church leaders and people who are actively engaged in the faith crisis community who know all of the issues very well, who are very solid with their testimonies. I'd like to speak to you to see if we can work together more and be seen as though we're on the same page together. Maybe you can incorporate some of my messages and we can work together. I sat through the Fair Mormon Conference a couple years ago when Elder Kevin Pearson came and invited us all to be more active in this effort. Faith crisis work is not just the church's job and Each member, he said, can do their own thing, uh, blog, or post on social media, or do YouTube channels, whatever your talent or your interest may be. And I felt the Holy Ghost there, and I felt a call to be more active and to make more of a difference. If you're not part of these intended audiences, and especially if you're not very aware of all the faith crisis issues, please don't continue. I don't want to be a cause for faith crisis. I don't share my blogs and my faith crisis material in forums where there's going to be converts or youth or members who are not very aware of these issues. I don't want to be a cause for faith crisis. Faith crisis is not a terrible thing for humans. It's difficult, but it happens for a lot of people in the right time. But if it's thrust on us when we're not ready then I think it can be more psychologically and spiritually harmful. And so I think it has to happen organically, and I don't want to be the person who's causing that for someone else. In this episode, I'm going to share my personal story with segues to introduce the paradigm and intellectual framework that I've used to reconstruct my testimony after going through faith deconstruction. In future episodes, we will get very detailed about all of the apologetic issues, and that's where it might feel a little anti mormony to some people. But I think it's important to to define the whole paradigm holistically. Big list criticisms like the CES letter are very effective, and when I've seen responses to those, they are kind of one-by-one responses, a response to polygamy and then a different response to Book of Mormon historicity. And sometimes these different responses don't seem to work together in a holistic fashion and so that's why i think it's important to define my whole entire paradigm and i believe that will be a very strong defense for these intellectual issues okay with that introduction let's get into my personal story i'm 49 years old born in 1970 i grew up in a large traditional lds family my father was a byu professor and my bishop if you can think of that large traditional cliche mormon family in Orem in the 80s that's us i went on a mission to korea i loved that experience it was great for me before my mission i was a b and c student at byu and after my mission i was an a student got married in the temple while at byu we started our family in my 20s and early 30s leading up to faith crisis i served as elders quorum president ward mission leader young men's The church was extremely important to us, and we weren't perfect Latter-day Saints, but we really wanted to be good Mormons. All of the big decisions that we made, when to start our family, how many children to have, where to live, what kind of career to go into, all of these decisions we made by looking at the good models of Latter-day Saints around us, trying to follow the brethren, trying to understand God's will for us, and Living the gospel was very important to us. Up until then, I had no inclination that any faith crisis issues would be on the horizon. I had kind of some nuanced ideas maybe about like polygamy or the priesthood ban. It's an important concept in faith crisis that you don't have too high of expectations. And if you can get an idea of profit fallibility, that will help you a lot. A lot of times people go into faith crisis because they have too high of expectations, especially for for revelation and prophets being perfect. And I don't think I had that. I think I had a pretty realistic testimony. I had the Biology 100 class at BYU and learned evolution and that fit fine for me. I was still able to believe in a literal Adam and Eve by thinking of that in a nuanced way. This is the early 2000s now and the internet was starting to be a big thing and I liked reading message boards. I was big on BYU football and basketball and I got into cougar board and then I would jump out and read other message boards and forums on different subjects that I wanted to explore and one of these was the field of apologetics. Critics and LDS people and apologists were discussing church history issues and apologetic issues. Apologetics is the field of study where LDS, informed scholars, and defenders are defending the church against critics on subjects like polygamy and Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, historicity. Hugh Nibley is the founder of Modern Mormon Apologetics, and then that evolved into Farms in the 80s. And then Farms became the Maxwell Institute in the 90s or early 2000s, I believe, And then the Maxwell Institute kind of changed directions and started doing a different mission. And the apologetics of today are Book of Mormon Central, Fair Mormon, and The Interpreter. A lot of people use the word apologist like it's a dirty word or a pejorative. Like, you're just an apologist, meaning you don't care about the truth. You're just doing anything to defend the church, and you don't care about scholarship. And that's a very offensive way to use the term apologist. And I don't mean it like that. I consider myself an apologist. And so I'll try to use the more politically correct terms like informed defender or informed scholar or faithful scholar. But if I ever slip into using that word apologist, I don't mean it in any negative way. I consider myself an apologist. I interact a lot with these Book of Mormon, Central, and Fair Mormon type guys online, and I consider them my friends. I think a Mormon apologetics can be a bigger tent to where maybe over here on this extreme side we have the church's true metaphorical paradigm but i'm still considered part of fair mormon and part of apologetics i would love that maybe someday so this is the early 2000s and i'm reading some apologetic issues and one thing that i found was happening was that i was realizing my earlier assumptions for some of these apologetic issues were maybe a little naive for example There's a connection between temple ceremony and Freemasonry, and I had assumed that this kind of naive version of why there's that connection, and that's that they're both ancient, and our temple ceremony goes back to the ancient Solomon's temple, and Freemasonry also goes back that old, but we're the true version, and they're kind of the false, stolen version of it. And then I would read, and I would see that informed defenders that I respected were acknowledging that, no that's not the case. That's a little simplistic. They're both modern, but it's okay because of this nuance and that nuance. And I don't want to get into that issue specifically right now, but this is the kind of thing I was doing. I was moving my view of a lot of these apologetic issues from a more whitewashed, naive view to a more nuanced view. And some of these apologetic issues didn't make sense to me. They felt a little contrived. And so, They became shelf items. A shelf is a metaphor in the faith crisis world where you have your LDS testimony and then you encounter issues and you can't make sense of it. And so rather than obsess and focus on that issue forever and not not move forward with your life, you just put that issue on the shelf and then you just proceed with your life, not worrying about that because it's on the shelf and you're not going to worry about it anymore. And then the analogy is that you put items on the shelf, more and more items on the shelf, until sometimes the shelf becomes so heavy it breaks. And that's the metaphor. Now let me do a quick segue on faith versus belief. If we know someone going through a faith crisis, we might be tempted to just say, stop believing that way and just believe the right way. You can choose to believe. And Terrell Givens introduced this concept in the faith crisis community about 10 years ago of Belief as a choice. And it never felt right to me. I never felt like I was choosing to believe the wrong way or I was choosing not to believe my old way. I wanted to retain my beliefs and I felt like I was being dragged away from my old beliefs, kicking and screaming. Every time I encountered a new issue that became a shelf item or was difficult for me to understand, it felt intrusive to me. I didn't enjoy this process. I went on a little research project to study this idea of belief as a choice and scholars and academics call this doxastic voluntarism and what i came to understand after reading a lot of academic articles on this is that scholars do not view belief as a choice as something that we can directly control beliefs are formed at a very subconscious level we can control some things we can ensure that we have a fertile environment for faith, or we can control the sources that we use, and we can control whether we are continue to do some of those things that promote faith, but we can't control our beliefs. Now, faith is a word that I like using a lot better. Faith is something that we can choose. I define faith as acting as if one knows it's true or acting as if one believes. Stephen Robinson in Following Christ said, In the old testament the words for faith faithful and faithfulness all come from the hebrew aman to be firm or reliable and imply primarily qualities of loyalty and determination rather than qualities of belief unfortunately due to denominational influence in modern english the word faith has come to be associated primarily with what we believe paul writes we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law but in faith in jesus christ And a better reading of that is faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Terrell Gibbons said, What we choose to embrace, to be responsive to, is the purest reflection of who we are and what we love. That is why faith, the choice to believe, and I say just eliminate that phrase, the choice to believe, let's just call it faith. That is why faith is, in the final analysis, an action that is positively laden with moral significance. And I believe that. I don't think belief is necessarily a virtue but faith is a virtue. Faith is something that we can say, that is something you should have, and that's a virtue if you have it, and that could be considered a sin if you reject it. But because belief is outside of our control, I don't think we can say that about belief. I'm a consultant, and I get checks from clients, and if I have a big check coming, I'm going to walk to the mailbox. That's the act of faith. I may not believe that check is coming today, but I'm going to walk to the mailbox to check if it's there as an act of faith. Faith is there outside of belief. A sports team that's a big underdog going into a game, they might not believe they're going to win, but they have to fight like they're gonna win. If they take a lie detector test before a big game where they're huge underdogs, do you think you're gonna win? They might fail that test if they say, yes, I think I'm gonna win but they need to get in that game and have faith, act as if they know they're going to win and fight. And sometimes underdogs win games. And so that faith is rewarded. This is the difference between faith and belief. And so please don't tell someone in a faith crisis, just believe. Please don't tell them it's a moral issue that they're sinning or they're doing something wrong if they're having trouble with their beliefs or their beliefs are changing that's very offensive and very hurtful to someone in a faith crisis because we don't feel that way at all. And that hurts our feelings. Please don't hurt our feelings. So I'm reading apologetic issues online occasionally, and I'm coming across shelf items occasionally. This is going over the space of several years. We didn't have the CES letter back then or these big list critical arguments. We weren't bombarded online with these issues nonstop. And It took longer to research these issues and and figure it out and sort it out. And so this was going on for two, three, four, five years. And then I came across the Book of Abraham issue, and I read a critique of that. And that felt like the smoking gun. That felt obviously fraudulent, and that was very upsetting to me. Here now, let me read this Richard Bushman quote. Increasingly, teachers and church leaders at all levels are approached by Latter day Saints who have lost confidence in Joseph Smith and the basic miraculous events of church history. They fall into doubt after going on the internet and finding shocking information about Joseph Smith. A surprising number had not known about Joseph Smith's plural wives. They are set back by differences in the various accounts of the first vision. They find that Egyptologists do not translate the Abraham manuscripts the way Joseph Smith did. Making it appear that the Book of Mormon was a fabrication. When they come across this information, they feel as if they had been introduced to a Joseph Smith and a church history they had never known before. They undergo an experience like viewing the famous picture of a beautiful woman who, in a blink of an eye, turns into an old hag. Everything changes. What are they to believe? Often, Church leaders, parents, and friends do not understand the force of this alternate view. Not knowing how to respond, they react defensively. They are inclined to dismiss all of the evidences. They are inclined to dismiss all the evidence as anti-Mormon or of the devil. Stop reading these things if they upset you so much. The inquirer is told, or go back to the familiar formula: scriptures, scriptures, prayer, church attendance. The troubled person may have been doing all of these things sincerely, perhaps even desperately. He or she feels the world is falling apart. Everything these inquirers put their trust in starts to crumble. They want guidance more than ever in their lives, but they don't seem to get it. I'll stop there, but he goes on to say how these seekers feel like they've been lied to or cheated by the church, and they don't feel like they can trust the church for answers. And some even turn this on God and start to distrust God and even become atheist. So that quote really resonates with me. It perfectly describes what was going on with me back then you've all seen that image that has the two perspectives. The one side is the beautiful woman and you can kind of see her side profile and her, she's wearing a hat. And then you twist it and you see the the old woman, the ugly old woman with the big nose. And you've seen these other images where it's like a pattern and you don't see anything. But after you stare at it a while, another picture jumps out at you. And faith crisis is just one of those things that it's a perspective difference. And until you've gone through it, and you've made that jump to where you see it through that different perspective, you can't explain it to someone who hasn't been through that perspective change. And for the person who hasn't been through that perspective change, it's just very difficult to understand why this other person sees that or is viewing it that way. But once we go through that perspective change, you can't go back. And so now we just have to deal with it. We have to figure out what to do from here. I also relate to that part about trusting the church. I was mad. I felt like I'd been lied to. I felt like I'd been manipulated. I felt like I'd based my life on a lie and I was teaching my family a lie. It was a really dark period for a while there. And that's why it's so important what the church is doing with these gospel topics essays and and trying to get more open and honest about its church history. I think this experience is going to become less and less frequent it's important that we do this really quickly to stop this experience from happening to our youth and to other people. I also relate to that part about not trusting God. I prayed to God and said something like, I understand why the church didn't share this information with me, but why didn't you? Why didn't you give me some spiritual prompting that something wasn't right here? I suffered spiritually and with my relationship with God for, for quite a while, and I didn't turn atheist. I still believe in God and it's complicated. We're going to get more into my view of God in the New Testament episode and talk about different ways to experience and to understand God. And if you're hung up on that issue about whether or not God exists and whether or not any of this could be real or whether there could be anything behind this metaphor, behind this metaphorical paradigm, then. Maybe you should go check out that New Testament episode now because it might be helpful. That's assuming that it's done. I'm trying to knock these all out. But I believe in God. I believe in the transcendent. And that was something really critical for me to get past was I had these spiritual experiences that I interpreted as very specific answers to very specific prayers. When I prayed to know if the Book of Mormon is true or whether Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I felt like I received very strong spiritual answers that, yes, that is true, I needed to understand what to do with that. And some people that go through this completely dump out spiritual experience. Confirmation bias is a thing where humans have an ability to create these kind of emotional or spiritual feelings to confirm a bias that we already have and it makes us feel better. There's a reason that we do it. And I understand that scientific principle, and I think there's some truth there. I think that's accurate way to describe reality. But I also have this kind of non-modern view that I'm just going to own, that I believe in the transcendent, and I believe spiritual experience can be an external thing, I don't want to dump those spiritual experiences that I had and I'm still a spiritual person and I can't explain it intellectually but I'll just own that so the spiritual experience that I had I recontextualized that maybe when I prayed to know the Book of Mormon is true and I received an answer maybe the answer was not specifically that Moroni is an actual Nephite prophet but that maybe the message of the Book of Mormon was true and important for me, or maybe even more generic than that, that God was happy with my journey and proud of me and wanted me to keep seeking Him and go on the spiritual journey to find Him. And I'm using male pronouns to describe God. I'm sorry. Our view of Heavenly Mother is beautiful, and its I'm so glad that we have a female divinity and male divinity and it's so important for our daughters and females of the church that where it's easier for them to view God as a female. I love that doctrine, and it's comforting to me as well. But being raised the way I was, and in my spiritual formation, I came to view God as male, and that's my default way of talking about God. So I'm not trying to ignore those people that view God as female. That also is important to me. Mm-hmm. But so please forgive me if I'm using all male pronouns here. So this is like the 2004-2008 time period where I'm grappling with all this. And it was a dark time for me. I was afraid to tell my spouse at first. And that was a mistake. I I think I didn't tell her for a couple years. And I advised that if you're married and you're going through this to share it with your spouse. There are resources online, Facebook groups where where people in mixed faith marriages get support get a good marriage counselor give grace and be generous with your spouse and go slow but please involve your spouse i think it's important to do that so through this period i decided that i did not believe the church was true with a capital t and things that i believed that were true about the church in a literal and absolute way i no longer believed that way But I still believe the church was good and I still believe the church was true in a lowercase t and that it was good for me. I still attended church and I still enjoyed it a lot of the time. And even though it was this dark period for me and I still felt the spirit at church, especially singing hymns and hearing people share their stories and their struggles. And I knew it was good for me. What it gives me, I really need And it's good for my wife, it's good for my children, it's good for my family. But I just felt really confused about what to do. And here let me read this Adam Miller quote that kind of capsulizes how I felt in that moment. Given my careful, decades-long cultivation for doubt and skepticism, still, even in that context, it would be dishonest and in bad faith to say that regardless of how unlikely some of these beliefs are, something very real and powerful is happening to me in the pew on Sunday when I bring myself back again, when I come back again, when I kneel down again, when I read the Book of Mormon again. Regardless of all my skepticism of all the different kinds of questions we could raise, something is happening to me in a substantial, first-person way that I can't deny regardless of what doubts I have of these peripheral, historical, third-person questions. The pull for that is sufficiently strong that there is no place else for me to go. So speaking of Adam Miller, I'm reading some Adam Miller, and I'm reading some Terrell Givens, and I'm reading the blogger knuckle, and I'm I'm reading some message boards and forums that that you can tell there's some nuanced uh, ideas out there, and there's people that are t- approaching their LDS testimony with more nuance than I was that I was uh, considering was possible, and the word nuanced is not exactly the right word, and man, do I get beat up when I use this word nuanced in in uh, Facebook posts and whatnot. Come join the discussion on, on my Facebook wall. We have some pretty good discussions sometimes. Okay, so nuanced. I know that nuanced doesn't exactly mean this, but here's here's what I'm meaning when I use the word nuanced LDS testimony. First, let's imagine a, a very, this might be a caricature, but let's imagine a very a whitewashed, naive view of the church. And this is what I think Richard Bushman calls the dominant narrative that might not be true, and I think this is what Patrick Mason is is talking about when he says we've overloaded the truth cart, and and that this is a a whitewashed version and an unsustainable version of Mormonism. Okay, so God created the earth, and it's a Genesis account is literal. Adam and Eve are literal. The earth is only six thousand years old. Before Adam and Eve, there was no there was no nothing. There there was no death before the fall. The Old Testament is generally literal. Noah's flood is literal, and that's how we get from Adam and Diamond in Missouri to the, to the old world setting in in Israel. And the Old Testament is generally the literal. The Book of Mormon is literal. Ancient Nephite prophets were visited visited by angels, and the high Christology that we see in the Book of Mormon is is due to them, uh, being taught by angels. Everything that Joseph Smith did and said was exactly clean. Priesthood was restored by angels, and all the details of polygamy are fine. And the priesthood ban was directed by God during the time that it was on, and then directed by God at the time that it w- was undone. And all the CES letter kind of issues are, are just because people are, are misunderstanding, and there's no there's no validity to any of the critical arguments. And prophets are led today by God, as, as almost as if uh, they're a puppet. God is speaking directly through them, okay, so that's that's probably a caricature that's probably not a lot of people do believe exactly like that but the the thing is sometimes we feel like others do like once we get i think there's almost like a an effect that once we get together with other active l d s in our, in the sunday block we we start speaking in a way that is maybe more orthodox than we really are just because that's the way that you fit in and so unorthodox ideas, even though they may be more common, seem more scary and and uncommon. Okay, so that's the 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 dominant narrative, the Orthodox version and then here's the if you if you have a nuanced LDS testimony, it means you're different enough from that that like you're uncomfortable talking about things in church or or, or among active LDS and, and maybe your nuance is related to, the creation and evolution, or maybe it's related to some scripture historicity being metaphorical instead of literal, or, or maybe it's related to prophets being more fallible and making mistakes, or maybe it's related to LDS exclusivity or interpreting the those issues differently related to exclusivity exclusivity and necessity of of the priesthood and of temple temple ordinances and so forth so nuanced the way i mean it, it means that you're you're different from that traditional view okay and reading uh, all these things in the blogger article, i i got the feeling there was a lot of other nuanced members out there but it just wasn't making sense to me i'm a, I'm a left brain literal thinking person i preach a lot of ambiguity at, right now and i I preach to that we need to view religion with less certainty and more faith and more mysterious but it's difficult for me. It did not come easy for me to make this transition and it's been years and years in the making and I'm still doing it because I'm not naturally set up to really do this well. I'm a excel junkie data analysis data scientist kind of guy was was my career and I'm not I think if you're more of a right brain liberal arts-based kind of th- thinker. I think these this way of uh, perspective makes it easier to adopt uh, a nuance and a more metaphorical approach. But anyway, it, it's very difficult for me. And this little anecdote kind of capsulizes that. Uh, Stephen Peck is a BYU biology professor who believes in evolution, and he'll speak. He spoke at Fairmore, and he'll speak in Religious um, firesides or or religious contexts, sometimes about creation and evolution, and and talk about how he believes his view of evolution is entirely compatible with the gospel, and he finds no issue with his LDS testimony. But here's someone. I'm going to quote someone who I think they were either going through faith crisis or or were an ex Mormon, and they were responding to Stephen Peck in this in this comment. And he he says, Stephen Peck's reluctance to talk about a historical Adam and the nuts and bolts of the fall, as taught in Mormonism, leaves him less than able to address the concerns of those who see conflict between science and faith. You cannot honestly pretend to address the topic without acknowledging the core problem. Why will he not address the fall and historical Adam? That is, a, and then he goes on to explain all these nuts and bolts, you know, like like I would, like, if if it's not a problem, then tell me how, you know. What about this? What about that? What about death? What about before Adam and Eve? What about all the other humans? What about Adam and Eve's parents? And, and he goes on and on, and then, and then he ends with, that is a conversation you cannot have with Peck because he is unwilling to go there. He says it is not part of his project. And during this time period, I, I would say this is more like the 2010 to 2012-ish time period for me. During this time period, I I was kind of the same way, and these scholars like Stephen Peck were frustrating to me at times, and I I, I related to this to this anecdote, but I want to repent of that, and now I I see it completely differently, and I, I understand you, sometimes these scholars will say, say things like histrocity is boring or it's not part of their project. And I understand that because sometimes these scholars, and let's identify what I'm talking about. So we talked about apologists, and now there's a term called neo-apologists. And neo-apologists is an even more offensive word to people, I think, than apologist, even though I love it. Like, I call myself Rob Terry, the neo-apologist. I would love for people to call me a neo-apologist. Almost every other person that we might call a neo-apologist, I think doesn't like this at all and i'll go ahead and list out some names that i might call neo-apologists and then i'll i'll repent for that immediately but people like adam miller stephen peck terrell gibbons richard bushman patrick mason sam brown uh, greg prince and, and then you've got uh, female scholars like Neilan McBain. Um, Melissa Inouye, Jana Reese, Rosalind Welch uh, might be in that same category, and I want to make it very clear. I'm not saying that these people believe like me. Far from it, okay? But I think listening to them talk about their testimony and their view of the gospel, I feel like they're more nuanced than most people would understand or, or or, or the average LDS. And going back to this definition of nuance that I that I gave earlier, and I don't want to speak for them, so you you go read them and determine for yourself what they're saying. But that's how I perceive them. Not that they're not that they're in line with me. I'm not saying that, but I understand and I have extreme respect. These are these are kind of all my favorite people right now. Th- this group that I'm talking about, and I understand why they say things like history is boring. I'm not interested in history because they're they're scholars and faith crisis concepts. Even though people that are going through faith crisis, it's all they can think about it, and and you're obsessed with it while you're going through it. And, and I'm probably going to be obsessed with it the rest of my life because that's what I'm kind of dedicating my my thing to. But for most people, faith crisis is something that you pass through and then you come out of it. And or or maybe these scholars never even went through a faith crisis because they they kind of have a different different perspective anyway, and maybe they never went through any sort of faith crisis. But for these scholars, the theology and the content is what's more interesting than, than the actual faith crisis matters. And so I, I understand completely why Stephen Peck would say, you know, that's not part of my project. You go figure out, you know, all the different models, you know, there's there's 30 different models that you could kind of define about Adam and Eve and the creation, and you go figure out what you're comfortable with. I'm not going to give you mine or spell it out in too much detail because that's not that's not my purpose. Back then, I was frustrated by that. Didn't make sense. But now, I, I totally understand. and And I'm sorry that I ever might have criticized any of these people that I have so much respect for. So I'm trying to make it work. I have this idea that this nuanced way is the direction I need to go, but it's not making a lot of sense. I'm suffering a lot of cognitive dissonance, it needs to make intellectual sense for me. I don't want to push down something to my children or perpetuate or or defend to other people, if it's going to leave you uh, with this kind of emotional distress every Sunday when when you're hearing people speak and talking in ways that are that are frustrating to you, and you're just you're just feeling intellectually conflicted. I needed to make sense of it if I was going to stay in it, and maybe for other people they don't. Really need to make sense because they can live in ambiguity and they can live in mystery, and that's probably a better way to go. But for me, in that moment, I needed to—I needed an intellectual framework to make sense of it of it all. And then I found outside the LDS tradition, I found my answer. Other religions are going through the same thing, so these faith crisis issues are common. It's a human thing that's been going on for the last hundred or two hundred years where Judaism is faced with this and Protestantism and and Catholic scholars are trying to make sense of this and and even Hindu and Muslim modern intellectual educated people are trying to make sense of of their their religious stories and foundation stories and scripture are sometimes based in historical and scientific areas that don't make sense in a modern world and maybe the spiritual aspects of them do make sense but they're connected to historical and scientific things that don't, and so they are trying to make sense of it the same way we are. And I found Marcus Borg, the book Heart of Christianity, is just what really opened my eyes and turned it all around for me. And I'm going to paraphrase Marcus Borg's two different para- paradigms here. Marcus Borg is an Episcopalian scholar that passed away a few years ago, but he was both a preacher and a scholar. And he's just great. Read as much Marcus Borg or find YouTube videos of him speaking, and I think you'll like him. So the earlier or literal paradigm. Scripture and religious doctrine are literally true. Historical references are factual and accurate. Faith is an expression of belief in the literal accuracy of scripture and teachings. Scriptures contain divine authority. Challenges to scriptural historical events would be damaging to faith. Uh, They are very concerned with factual reality of the Bible. Believing scientists are involved with attempting to provide alternative science and historical explanations not accepted by mainstream scientists. Religion is a top-down exercise revealed from God to man. Faith equals belief. Modern science and historical understanding is viewed as a temptation, as worldly as a choice man must make between God and Satan. And then here's the emerging paradigm or the metaphorical paradigm. Scripture is seen as metaphorical. Factual accuracy of scripture and doctrinal teachings are not critical. The importance and power of religion is in the concepts and lessons. Faith is an expression of loyalty and devotion, but not necessarily a belief in the factual accuracy of scripture or historical religious origins challenges to scriptural historical events are not damaging to faith though divine inspiration and intervention is seen as possible religion is seen as a bottom up thing created by man as a way to seek wor- to seek god worship and show devotion scripture is sacred in its status and function but not in its origin. Scripture is a human response to God. Human development in science and intellectualism is embraced. There could never be conflict with religion because no past views within a religion can't be modified as we understand more about our world. That's from a Christian context, but I think you can see how it relates to to the Latter-day Saint faith. and And I think even though, so Greg Prince walks us through the history and, and talks about, he, he believes we were a little bit more open to these metaphorical kind of modern views before what he calls correlation, which is in the 20th century, the Joseph F. Smith, followed by Joseph Fielding Smith, followed by Bruce R. McConkie for a period of almost a century, really had a lot of sway over the church on all of these intellectual issues. And they were all very conservative and they aligned with more of the evangelical anti-science side of things. And so coming out of the 1970s, we were really locked into this evangelical uh, view where maybe before we weren't really as much based in it. And, but... We have a modern prophet and, and we're open to revelation and, and progress and evangelicals are locked into the Bible. If they want to change, they have to they have to go back and, and try to reanalyze and recontextualize the Bible. And we can simply just have a modern prophet who changes things and we move on and it's great. So we're positioned to be, I believe, a very intellectual and modern church I took this and and it made so much sense to me and that that's when I started getting the ideas for my blog and everything that you've seen me start producing. This was, you know, like the 2013-2014 time period. I started my my blog in 2015. But there was one more piece of the puzzle that I needed to become fully reconstructed. So, we talk about faith. This is called the Faith Crisis and Reconstruction series and the reconstruction is just as important or more important. And so we talk about the faith crisis and we talk about the different facts that deconstruct people. And I think it's important to go there for what I'm trying to do, but the reconstruction phase is just as much or more important. And so I'm all the way, almost all the way back to the top of my faith reconstruction, but there was one more piece of the puzzle and it's this, it's that this liberal Christianity Of viewing things more metaphorically felt really good. But the criticism of mainline Protestantism and the community of Christ is an example of this. The criticism for some is that it's kind of wishy washy. And if you compare uh, an evangelical branch or a fundamentalist, a more fundamentalist religion and LDS would be one of those, you know, compare an LDS ward or an evangelical church on one side. And then, on the other side, to like a Episcopalian branch, a liberal Episcopalian branch, or maybe a Community of Christ branch, and you compare the the two, and you get the feeling that the one side takes it more seriously, and it's more integrated into their life, and the other, it might feel a little wishy-washy, and that might just be an outsider perspective and totally wrong, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend anyone who's part of the community of Christ because I have a lot of respect for them. And I know there's a lot of people there who take their faith very seriously. But for me, being raised Mormon and things like missions in my past and and temple covenants, this liberal Christianity felt like it was might be a little wishy-washy. So the question is, is this metaphorical paradigm uh, something that's really going to sustain you? Is it a saving, sustaining faith? Here's a quote from Joseph Smith. Let us here observe that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. For from the first existence of man, the faith necessary unto the enjoyment of life and salvation never could be obtained without the sacrifice of all earthly things. When a man has offered and sacrificed all that he has for to the truth's sake, not even withholding his life and believing before God that he has been called to make the sacrifice because he seeks to do his will, he does know most assuredly that God does and will accept his sacrifice and offering, and that he has not nor will not not seek his face in vain. Under these circumstances then he can obtain the faith necessary for him to lay hold on eternal life. I love that quote. I want my religion to have some teeth in it. And for a while, I I really struggled. And this is, this is really the question is, is can this paradigm provide that, that level of faith? And so before my faith crisis, if I'm tempted to do, to do something wrong or to go in the wrong direction or, or commit a sin in that moment, then I've got my covenants to think of and I've got some real important things on the line am I going to, am I going to lose my family? I believe that if I follow my covenants that I can be with my family for eternity and I can have exaltation. And so if I make the wrong choices, am I going to jeopardize that? That has some teeth in it and that provides a real, real motivation. And so now, you know, I'm not so sure. I take these things by faith and by hope, and I have hope that there's a resurrection and that there's a exaltation and that there's a salvation and that there's a future world that I can live with my family, I hope for that. But do I believe in it? Some days, I'm not so sure. On a good day, yes, I believe. On a bad day, maybe I don't believe. It's something that I struggle with, I admit. And so now, if I'm tempted to go down the wrong path, and I don't have these motivations anymore, is is this faith going to give me the motivation to do the right thing. And that's a real criticism of this model. And the last piece of the puzzle that I I feel like really reconciles this is the view of religion that I learned from Jordan Peterson. And I know Jordan Peterson is a very controversial, controversial character. And, and please don't just dismiss him. I'm not going to share his political ideas that are, that are very, that are very inflammatory. Please listen to what he has to say about religion here he's an evolutionary psychologist. He's not an atheist, that's that's the wrong word to use, but his view of God and religion seems very naturalistic and without a supernatural element, and so it fits into this metaphorical paradigm quite well. And he talks about Bible stories and Christian doctrine, not like it's a God-breathed, you know, revealed text from a transcendent being but more like it's revealed to humans through uh, evolution an evolutionary process of of synthesizing our best myths and stories that teaches psychological truths and and things that are not wishy-washy at all are not like nice to have ideas and truths but absolutely critical and vital truths for us and I'm going to take his model of Christianity and tweak it a little and paraphrase it a little, but it goes something like this, okay? The fall is symbolic of humans becoming conscious, recognizing the dangers of this world and taking on all the anxiety and mental sufferings that we humans take on. There's a lot of suffering in this world, right? And we humans cause a lot of that suffering for ourselves and others through sin and wrong choices. So we see pretty easily that by collectively making a lot of bad decisions or committing sin, that we can create hell on earth. Conversely, we get an idea that by collectively doing the right thing, we could potentially create heaven on earth. So the earth and the human family is in a state of needing to be redeemed. Christ showed the model of how to live in that right way to create that heaven on earth, and also the model for how to redeem the world through sacrifice. Now, we can participate with Christ in that redemption by covenanting with God. And if you have a hard time imagining that God, then picture God as the highest good you can possibly imagine. Covenant to God and be willing to make any sacrifice necessary to participate with Christ in redeeming the world with the end goal of creating heaven on earth. I just get shivers when I hear Jordan Peterson talk about religion that way. And that feels so meaningful to me. That's intellectually sound. There's no there's no CES letter gotchas that that are gonna turn this worldview upside down with, you know, a couple clicks on the internet. It's intellectually sound and I think it has some real teeth to it. And my my liberal Christian friends might be saying, Well, this is what we already believed in and you maybe you didn't pay enough close enough attention to Marcus Borg because he speaks the same way. And and maybe that's right. But hearing Jordan Peterson talk, I mean he 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 feels like he can mobilize an army to to like to go and and do this Christian redemption. And that's why he frankly scares a lot of people because of the way he talks and people take his ideas and run with them in the wrong direction and I don't want to support that. But this is meaningful. This sounds like and, and this sounds really Mormon, doesn't it? This, this is covenant-based. This is, this is really works-based religion that, that feels like my like, like the, the Mormonism I was raised in. This is the kind of faith that I think can be a saving faith, like what Joseph Smith says. This really is a motivating faith that, that makes me want to jump out of bed and, and live my best self and keep my covenants. So this leads me kind of to the top of my faith reconstruction and and I'm in a really healthy place and you know I'm I'm still I'm obviously I'm still learning and growing, but I'm at a place where I'm pretty steady in a steady state and I want to give back. I'm a missionary. I, I if if you're raised in this church, you learn that if you have something spiritual or religious that has value, you want to share it with others and I want to give back. And so I started my blog, and I'm doing this in the spirit of Elder Ballard. He he said, gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. Gone are the days when students were protected from people who attacked the church. It's all over the place. Our our kids are going through it, and our peers are going through it. Everybody's going through it. This podcast series is my, uh, is my answer to that, that call from Elder Ballard to counsel and share with people going through faith faith crisis the best information from the church's best faithful scholars, and, and I'm going to share scholarly information from both inside the church and outside the church that I think is the best Faith-affirming way to to go through a faith crisis. And there are different models in this in this faith crisis community. There's the fair Mormon model uh, of showing information that kind of reinforces a, a literal traditional view, and then there's the what I refer to as the neapologist approach. Forgive me if I'm reading too much into that message. The Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Richard Bushman approach, which seems to acknowledge more of these uh, what you might call quote-unquote anti-Mormon facts, but showing that we can nuance through those things and provide a different alternative. And then there's the the model that the Hafens are providing, which is to, to show that there's that simplicity on the other side of complexity, which I think is a, is a really a good way to view things. I saw this quote, a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. So I think that's what they're trying to do. But for me, some of these approaches, they didn't work for me. They didn't work for the reasons I've stated and for the reasons that I'll state as I go through this podcast series. And I needed someone to give me a very specific intellectual framework and paradigm and, and to be faith crisis for dummies and walk me through every, every step of the way and show me a model that that I can follow and that's that's my intention here to be faith crisis for dummies to be to be very specific about uh, my beliefs and why I think uh, how I got how I came to my beliefs and why I think they they fit within an LDS testimony even if other people might not think so and so I started my blog, my most popular post that I made was my CES letter reply, and that one had 30,000 clicks, and I've had 300,000 clicks in total over the past five years on my website, over hundreds of blog posts, and, and way too much time writing these these blog posts, but that, I'm proud of that. And, and I know I'm still small potatoes, but I'm proud of the the small impact that I've had, and I get people messaging me on Facebook or emailing me about once a month or more saying, you know, I read this and I've been reading your blog and thank you. It really helped me uh, make sense of things and it's helping me stay in the church and thank you for what you're doing. And I've been wanting to do a podcast series for a couple of years now, and I'm not very good at this oral format. I feel much more confident writing. And I'm really nervous about putting all this together and I worry that I'm gonna be boring and and I'm gonna I, I start hyperventilating when I practice this and I've been I've been practicing this. Uh, I did a couple episodes. you know, it's been a couple of years. I've been working on and off and every time I try, I listen to myself and I hate it and and I put it on the back burner. And now with these uh, coronavirus times, and my work not being as busy it's it's now or never so i'm going to go for it and i hope that you can have grace like moroni asked to look past my my human frailties and and feel the the spirit of my message and i want you to hear my voice and my emotion to understand what i mean when when i'm sharing this message and so i'm going to get really detailed in all my beliefs and and i, I this is the church of true podcast. And when I say I know the church is true, I believe the LDS church is true and that the lived experience is true and beautiful. And this this church is a perfect place for me to facilitate my seeking and worshiping God, providing a faith community to serve others and be served. And when I engage fully in this church and I take Alma's experiment to experiment on the word, then I, I'm nourished. And the 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 seed grows and I'm inspired to live my best life and become my best self. And that is what I mean when I say the church is true. Many things I used to believe were true with a capital T in an absolute way I no longer believe, or I believe to be true only in a metaphorical sense. And I will spell those out in great detail over the next Twelve episodes. That's gonna make my wife really nervous. And I'm sorry for those faithful members who view this. You might feel like some of these details I'm sharing are anti-Mormon, or why why is he doing this? But I, I'm doing this because I felt like that's what I needed when I went through this. And so I'm gonna get really detailed. And hopefully that we'll do both. We'll cover faith crisis and deconstruction. I'm not gonna deconstruct anybody on purpose. And if you're not already there, please please don't keep listening. But even more important is I want to go through faith reconstruction and show how these truths are just as meaningful to me after going through the faith reconstruction process. Now, one thing that I won't do on this in this podcast series is that I take my covenants seriously, and I covenant as a Latter-day Saint to sustain the prophet and the brethren and we're, we're going to go through in great detail what I think the, the Brethren have shown us, what, what that means, and what's okay and what's not okay. I am going to obviously express some disagreement with different beliefs and, and maybe some different doctrines and policies, but I'm going to do that in a way that I'm sustaining the Brethren. Elder Christofferson told us it's it's okay to disagree, and even to publicly disagree, but that we can't, that we shouldn't harshly criticize, we shouldn't persuade people away from the church, and I'm not going to do that. If anyone interprets me as doing that, please let me know where I've gone wrong, because I, I do not intend to do that at all. I love the Brethren. I love this church. I'm doing this to help people stay in the church. There are some issues that I disagree with, and some people might say, how can you sustain the brethren, and how can you be part of the church that's that's hurting people with some of these policies that are very hurtful? And also from a certain extent, I, I believe there's some reality to those criticisms, but I believe in the church, and I believe that overall it's a positive experience. I think that we're getting better, and I, I'd like to be part of a process that produces change in some areas, but all I can do is express my view, and maybe those issues will be Uh, noticed by the brethren, and they can seek revelation, and it's possible that those policies or doctrines could change someday, but that's outside my scope. I just have to trust the prophet that he'll seek the will of God and do the right thing, and I sustain him. And I will do my best to do this podcast series with the overall light and reflection that I'm taking my covenant seriously and supporting the brethren. So that is what we wanted to accomplish in episode one. And thank you for listening to the end. It means a lot to me and stick with us for the, for future episodes. Thanks. Bye.